Hello, good morning and welcome to our IFG virtual events. Uh, I'm Catherine Haddon. I'm a senior fellow here at the Institute for Government. So we are back in lockdown, uh, leaving the house only with our reasonable excuses. Pubs and restaurants are closed. We are eating in to help out. But the journey to these latest set of restrictions has been more protracted and more disputed than back in March. We now know that after opening up over the summer, the government had warnings from its scientific advisers from September onwards about the resurgence of the virus and calls for a further lockdown or circuit breaker to try and stem the flow of the virus. Case numbers, hospital admissions and tragically deaths have all been on the rise. The government say that the worsening picture of what was likely to happen in terms of NHS capacity was the trigger for going into lockdown again, um, a lockdown that the Prime Minister previously described as devastating. Meanwhile, the economic costs are visible both in the data and in its effect on many people's lives. But the government's, UK government's approach to how it balances economic, epidemiological and other factors is far less clear. SAGE's published reports and minutes can dominate headlines, but the government has resisted calls from their own backbenchers to publish impact assessments of the new lockdown or an economic analysis. So we wanted to explore how science advice and economic and other forms of advice are developed within SAGE, within the Treasury, how they're combined and used within governments and whether that is causing problems and what can be done about it. Has the government set up a battle between economic and health considerations that shouldn't exist? And hugely importantly, how do other forms of evidence and other concerns, well-being, social impacts, operational concerns, how do they fit in? We've got a fantastic panel to discuss all of this. I'll come to each of them in a moment with an opening questions, but to briefly introduce to them, we have John Edmonds, a professor of infectious disease modelling at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and a participant in SAGE. Susan Mickey, professor of health psychology at UCL and also a, a participant in SAGE, uh, its subcommittee on uh, behavioural science and also a member of independent SAGE. We've got Lord McPherson of Earls Court. He was Treasury Permanent Secretary from 2005 to 2016 and is now a crossbench peer and a visiting professor at King's College London. And we have Nancy Hay. She's the Executive Director of the What Works Wellbeing Centre and a former civil servant. So many thanks to them for being here. And for those of you watching at home, thanks for joining us. Do submit your questions using our Q&A function. I will try to get to as many of them as I can through the course of this discussion. So, John, I wanted to come to you first. SAGE have been very prominent from early on in the crisis. Um, papers are published, the advice can be trapped. From your perspective, how does the epidemiological advice and the economic advice interact within governments as much as you know? And what do you think when you hear people like Theresa May or others arguing for more economists to sit on SAGE? I think, I think it's important to understand that SAGE doesn't have a fixed membership. Experts are brought in um, uh, as necessary. And generally speaking, it does have quite a broad range of experts. So uh, certainly throughout this epidemic, there have been behavioural scientists, virologists, um, ethicists included on SAGE. Um, so there is quite a broad range of views that come in and the SAGE's advice reflect those, that, those broad range of disciplines. Um, currently, SAGE is not constituted to look at economic uh, advice. So it's not that there aren't economists sitting on SAGE providing economic input into the um, the uh, advice that SAGE comes up with. That that comes in separately into government. It is there. It's done by the Treasury and, and others uh, within the government um, and feeds in, I think, into the Cabinet Office uh, level. So when the SAGE advice comes through, I think there is equivalent economic advice that, that, that feeds in at, you know, around the same time. I think the problem is one of, um, of, uh, of, pro of, of publication more than anything else. It's not that the economic advice isn't coming, isn't feeding into government decision making. It, it very clearly is, um, but you don't see it. So we don't see the counter, you know, we don't see this, that side of the, uh, the evidence. We only see you know, ever since April, and I'm very much happy that we do do this now on SAGE, 
Um, all of the SAGE advice is, is published as rapidly as possible and the evidence supporting it is published as rapidly as possible. But what we don't see is the other side, uh, the evidence supporting the economic, the economic advice itself and the evidence supporting that. Now, I think that that is a, a little bit of a failure in terms of being able to get the government's point of view over um, and why it's come to decisions, because of course, all the way through, the government has had to balance these things off. And sometimes they, they will be in conflict. Sometimes I suspect very strongly that the economic advice and the epidemiological advice will coincide often. Um, but we haven't seen that. It's, it's, it's really that we're not seeing the, the economic side of the, of, of, the, uh, of the evidence. It's not that it's not coming, it's not that it's not playing an important role in government decision making. Nick, can I come to you? I mean, there's a bit of a mismatch in as much as SAGE is this, you know, relatively high profile uh, body um, that publishes uh, a huge amount of, of the work and thinking that it's doing. The economic advice, as, as John said, largely comes through the traditional route of the Treasury, a department through ministers and senior officials. Um, Firstly, I mean, give us an idea about what you think of the way in which that economic advice is developed and incorporated. Uh, but also, I mean, this particular question about transparency, uh, the Chancellor has said that there are no specific forecasts on the impact of lockdown. Um, you know, the government have resisted putting out um, its equivalent economic forecasts. Do you think the government is, is failing in setting out how it is analysing economic factors and the impact that those are having? Look. I think uh, a more confident government would be publishing um, impact assessments. Um, clearly, economists are in the background at SAGE. I was looking at the minutes last night and I see a senior Treasury economist was at the meeting as an observer on the 20th of September. I agree if you if 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 economists were going to be on SAGE, I think you'd have to reconstitute its function and objectives. Um, I was struck um, by, by a lecture Gus O'Donnell gave, um, I think last month, where he um, drew attention to um, the National Security Council as a model where you can incorporate expertise alongside politicians. And what I would hope, um, I also, and I should also say, I, I experienced in the financial crisis of 2008, Gordon Brown set up a national economic council to bring together various interests to talk about economic interventions. And I would hope that the Prime Minister or Mr Gove or the Cabinet Secretary has convened some group where um, scientific and economic advice is distilled. Um, and decisions can be taken in that context against a commonly understood framework. I, I, I mean, at the moment, I rather doubt that is happening. Um, look, I don't think you need forecasts necessarily. Economic forecasts generally aren't worth the paper they're written on and get overtaken by events, but you do need um, a, a framework for understanding uh, the, the, the trade-offs because um, I, I totally agree that generally um, economics and um, science will go in similar directions. Um, I'm absolutely certain early on, um, you know, closing closing down the economy probably made very good um, sense. But as this crisis continues and we become more knowledgeable, I do think there are trade-offs. Clearly, the government has decided to keep schools open on this occasion, which suggests that they aren't taking into account well-being issues. So, um, I mean, I know it's, it always falls to ex-civil servants to suddenly become interested in open government and freedom of information. But um, I think if you're confident as a government, actually the more information you get out there, the better. And that in turn improves the quality of debate. Susan, if I could come to you now, I mean, you're a member of Behavioural Science Subcommittee, as I said, a lot of the work were minimising adherence to government intervention, something that's obviously hugely important right now with the second lockdown. I mean, what about that advice? What do you think would help in terms of getting th uh, that advice, getting traction within governments? 
I think there's um, several things. One is that um, instead of uh, us being in responsive mode only, where we're responding to very general uh, questions about you know, principles of good communication or how in general uh, you can increase adherence, I think it would be much better if we were asked advice about very specific policy issues. Um, for example, the 10 p.m. curfews, uh, fines for not isolating, uh, the moving from two metre distance to one metre rules. These all have very important behavioural considerations, which I don't know whether they were taken into account or not. Um, so I think that's one thing. Um, the issue of transparency, I think, is really important because I'm aware there are behavioural scientists in working with the Cabinet Office in different parts of government. So I'm never quite sure, you know, how much our advice uh, gets taken into consideration by whom and how, because there's no feedback. Uh, so we don't actually know what does gain traction and um, what doesn't. And I really agree with Nick's point about a framework uh, for understanding trade-offs. And that does mean that um, people from different uh, scientific disciplines or relevant sectors do need to get round a table together. So I was on uh, NICE's Public Health Interventions Advisory Committee for eight years, and um, we had particular you know, effectiveness reviews, but also cost effectiveness reviews. And we have everyone sitting around the table um, thinking about these issues, but not just as experts. We also had um, you know, e expert witnesses, i.e. people who were um, living, experiencing in the real context that we were trying to address. Um, and I think this is another thing, more, more involvement and understanding of the communities uh, that we're advising about would be really helpful. And um, I mean, to give an example of just take, I mean, the three things I, I mentioned, all of them I could explain, had, had behavioral scientists, I think, been at the table in the, you know, nearer the, where the decisions are actually taken rather than 10 steps away, I think it, it could have made a difference because we know, for example, the two meter to, to, to one meter, um, my understanding is Sage always kept to the um, evidence-based um, conclusion that two metres is needed to reduce transmission. And a, um, a Downing Street review was set up that I was told did include um, scientists and economists, but we never heard who they were or what evidence they drew on or what their deliberations were to say we were moving to one metre. Now, one important thing to, to um, know about that from a behavioural point of view is actually, unless you're in an intimate relationship with someone, we all keep about one metre distance from each other. That is a normal social distance. So in effect, by moving from two metres to one metre, you're basically losing the concept of social distancing. And, and we saw that happening. So I think the, the, the I'd say three things. Um, one is, being able to be more proactive um, in order to say, we think these are the issues. So for example, we've known for many, many months because I'm part of the uh, group of researchers who are doing weekly surveys um, that only 20% of people with symptoms are saying they're self-isolating for the two weeks. Um, so we haven't actually you know, been addressing that at the time when we could have many months ago. Um, so I think being able to be more proactive, being able to be more directly involved in specific policy issues rather than more general issues and being able to be with other disciplines um, and relevant groups of people, as I say, including the relevant communities um, for some kind of to, to develop and to use a framework um, for trade-offs, which can then be shared with the public and we can all understand, which we can't at the moment, on what basis decisions were made, because then you're in a position to evaluate it and know to what extent does, do we agree with that. And also, I think if you understand it, you understand the rationale, the evidence is that you're more likely to adhere. Thanks, Nancy. Um, coming to you now, I mean, listening to all of that, obviously, you know, we've been focusing very much on, on science versus the economy. There are, you know, 
all sorts of other issues that we have learned over these many months that we need to be thinking about. I mean, what do you think in terms of the, the broader insights of social science, well-being, population health, how have those been incorporated into decision making? How does it look from the outside? What do you think are the biggest gaps we have at the moment in terms of our understanding of, of COVID and lockdown effects? I think it's interesting a couple of things there that you said this is economy versus health, this is science versus the economics and I think neither of those things are true. Um, I think um, these broader insights have been included but they've been done and you can see that in the changes to the second lockdown actually but less coherently and less transparently and actually what Nick was talking about a framework for thinking about this, well-being offers that. So, uh, well-being in the context I'm talking about it means how we're doing as individuals, communities and as a nation and how sustainable that is for the future, known in the Green Book as social welfare. So this allows us to look at a broader range of measures than just um, a, a, a very narrow lens in either economics or health, a broader range of things that we care about, so jobs and livelihoods as well as economy as a whole. Um, and also a broader concept of, of health, of the physical and mental health and different types of health impacts. But it also allows us to bring in uh, things that we know matter. So um, the top drivers of, of overall well-being, which we've seen go all over the place for the first time, really, um, are sort of mental and physical health. That includes non-COVID ill health. Um, the relationships, both our personal relationships, our community relationships and our social interaction around that and our national relationships, our social trust, which is essential if we're going to have effective lockdowns and then the econo economic ones, jobs and incomes. But the other thing is, is about the short and long term effects as well. So this is about how sustainable it is for the future. One of the things that is really clear from some of the economic um, decisions that have been made is that we know that uh, some things have a disproportionate impact uh, than we'd expect. So we know that there's a long term scarring impact from unemployment, for example, particularly if it's longer than a year or and there's, and there's ways to mitigate that. So having a, a framework to consider all of that is important. The other thing that the well-being approach and to evidence starts to allow you to do is look at distribution. And, and Susan mentioned understanding communities, and it's really clear that um, effects are not evenly spread. Uh, and that can be true within groups uh, and uh, between groups as well. And so what, uh, so for example, we can see that uh, actually some kids are much happier at home, but those who are not happy at home, that's a real problem. We can see that with the free school meals discussion. Uh, we can also mm. see that teenage boys, loneliness is affecting them uh, and uh, that affects their mental wellbeing. And you can see that Department for Education put together a state of the nation report on children and young people's wellbeing that starts to try and bring together that evidence base. Um, I think the question we're kind of talking about today is who is included on which advisory mechanisms and how and then where is it combined? Um, I think there is a, I mean, I'm probably having worked on freedom of information, I think there is a strong case for a protected space for decision making. And there's also a strong case for um, protecting, making sure you get the best advice possible and making sure that uh, those who provide it who wouldn't normally be in the public space are supported appropriately um, mm -hmm. and so I think I'd rather that everything was written down and there was accountability even if it was 30 years later. On the other hand I think there is a big gap between the public health advice which is necessarily really clear really simple and the expert discussions which is not being met um, very effectively and I think um, some independent form. We've heard Nice mentioned, we've heard a number of economic ones and Sage, that, a way of doing that uh, that brings together the global evidence base in a coherent way. Nice have done a brilliant job of doing live reviews, for example, of bringing evidence into policy. Um, I was struck by the conversation in Parliament at the Science and Technology Committee about this isn't our evidence to publish, was mentioned a couple of times, and that is interesting about who and which is taking the decisions. But um, I think there isn't a framework quite yet about how to do it. And I don't think impact assessment is a very effective one to do, not least because it always had that heading of unintended consequences, which uh, was always ridiculous. Thanks. John, can I come back to you briefly? I mean, firstly, this question about um, a framework and whether or not that, I mean, there's a sort of broader issue about whether there's a consistent strategy and whether or not the the commissioning that you get in terms of potential policies that you can explore the modelling on is there. I've got a couple of questions though also, one from Gus O'Donnell which is um, 
about whether or not SAGE could be publishing uh, expected excess deaths forecast with and without the new lockdown measures. Perhaps that's more for you to explain exactly how uh, the modelling work happens. There is also a question though from Jonathan Porter's always um, wanting to, to uh, get in a uh, interesting question. Um, he asks about this idea of the separate tracks um, in terms of advice going to ministers from the epidemiological and economic advice, uh, particularly about, say, uh, the generosity of statutory sick pay, um, where you know the likelihood of individuals to self-isolate is key to the health epidemiology and effectiveness of the measures. Um, but, you know, the policy sits with DWP and with HMT and, you know, how is that advice therefore being integrated and so forth. Perhaps that's a bit too specific, but I think it goes to this point that there's a different sort of, there's a confusion about how it's being presented externally as well as what's going on inside government. Sorry, so there's a few things there. I'll try my best. So. Um, this was started off with the framework. Yeah, um, I, I, I do. I do kind of agree with the other panelists on this. I think it would be um, helpful. I think if there was a clear framework, because then I think you could see what the clear strat what, what the strategy might be. So what what are the government trying to achieve? Um, and I, I'm not sure that that has been consistent throughout. So I think we have had uh, sometimes at, at times we've had quite a clear. Uh, aim, um, protect the NHS, for instance, that was a kind of very clear aim in the early lockdown. Um, but then uh, later on, I, I don't think we stuck to it so much and we had things like uh, eat out to help out. So I think there's a, you know, I think I think a lack of a, a framework and a clear long term strategy has been a problem uh, over the course of this epidemic. And we have therefore uh, flipped a little bit from one uh, focus to another um, uh, as time has progressed. Um, in terms of uh, Gus O'Donnell's question, which was uh, Sage going, I think it was our Sage going to uh, produce uh, models with and without the effect of uh, projections with and without it's the medium term projections. Yes, yeah. the answer to that. Um, the trouble is we don't really have a good idea about the uh, impact of the lockdown just yet. Um, because we haven't tried this sort of thing before. Um, so we have uh, very uh, weak evidence at the moment, uh, weak evidence based on, on which to make these projections. So they're very uncertain at the moment. And I, actually, I'd like to make that as a general point. I think, I think uh, it is um, incredibly difficult to make decisions during epidemics. Um, you know, there's this sort of awful tyranny of the epidemic, of the sort of exponential growth which means that decisions uh, don't get any easier if you put them off. In fact, they get harder. And um, and so uh, you're going to have to make decisions uh, quite often, quite frequently. You're going to have to make decisions when the evidence is very poor. Um, you know that, that you don't have the perfect study to point you to exact to tell you to exactly what to do. Um, and you're going to have to make decision anyway, um, because it's not going to get any easier if you put it off. And I, so I have huge sympathy with the government, you know, facing that kind of predicament. Um, and maybe it is a little bit of a lack of confidence to to come out and say that, um, that it isn't easy and, and mistakes will be made inevitably when in, on, in hindsight. But actually, at the time, it's done for, a, uh, you know, for you know, the best purposes. And again, I think this is where the frame, a framework or, a, you know, some clear strategy might might help, actually in being able to see why decisions were made at a certain time uh, and so on. The last question, I forget what it was about. This was about uh, economic yeah. evidence. And yeah, this was about, um, he, he focused on the issue of statutory sick pay, but I, I mean, the main point is about how actually a lot of these decisions, you know, intertwine um, economic and epidemiological concerns, i.e., you know, the health outcomes yeah. and the economic outcomes are both concerned, but also the the economic the behavior is affected by the economy as much as you know the the rules that are put in place yes so i think i think there is a uh, i think i think there is an argument for bringing these things together uh um perhaps uh earlier on i, I think i mean i think that eat out to help out is an example uh, and the other I, I i can't imagine many epidemiologists 
suggesting that that was a good idea, quite honestly. Um, so that, that was obviously one other side of the, these things maybe should have been put together in a bit more and, and integrated in the, uh, throughout in a, a slightly better way. I mean, Nick, on that, um, eat out to help out. And now, obviously, we've we've gone back to um, you know full furlough for through till March. So there was a push. It feels like from the Treasury to try and open up parts of the economy that you know didn't seem to be driven by epidemiological concern. It seemed to be driven largely by economic concern. Is it? I mean, where do you think that's coming from in terms of the Treasury? Its outlook. Um, is it was it very much focused on the sort of short to medium term concerns as far as you can tell? Was it thinking through what are the longer term effects on these sorts of things? Well, look, I don't know um, what discussions uh, went on in the Treasury about eat out to help out. Um, I think in uh, the summer there was this optimism that of around a sort of how you could create a v-shaped recovery in the economy and at that point um, the virus numbers were looking pretty good um, i mean what 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 surprises me with hindsight is that um, on each occasion with the virus britain tends to be several weeks behind um, continental europe um, so um, things were beginning to pick up in France considerably earlier than Britain. And yet, um, you know, the, the, the policy response continues to be um, to, 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 to be late. And I, coming, coming back to these policy issues, um, you know, I, I, I completely agree with John that, um, that taking policy decisions in conditions of uncertainty is really difficult. And we all think that there's some fantastic sort of uh, model where you can take every single consideration into account and come to a sensible decision. Life is not like that. Um, the evidence base is evolving the whole time. Nevertheless, in my view, at any point in time in a crisis, if the government can get things about two thirds right, it's doing a pretty good job. So you're always going to criticise the government, but you just kind of want it to do, be doing broadly the right thing. Now, it, the Treasury has the capacity to take into account things which go beyond economics. And I think this, the whole issue of, um, you know, the value of uh, life um, is, is really important. I mean, bear in mind, though, that people and therefore governments can be quite irrational about the cost of life. Um, you know, investment appraisals show that um, you know, people attach a lot more to lives lost on the railways than they do on the roads. So um, the Treasury's job is to try and impose some discipline, bring science in, bring behavioural uh, economics as well as more traditional economics to the party. Um, when I was at the Treasury, I chaired a um, heads of analysis group which brought together scientists, um, statisticians, economists, um social uh policy people um i hope that group still exists because actually a lot of this is how you organize whitehall and how you channel um combined advice into the decision making bodies i mean i mentioned the national security council earlier there's a very long tradition of bringing the intelligence agencies together with the cabinet office to try and get a single combined view of the world and I think actually the one lesson of this crisis is we need to get smarter at doing that. Thanks um, Nancy I think you're waving at me do you want to come in don't forget to unmute yourself and then I'll come back to you Susan. So I think this separate tracks of advice thing is really interesting and it applies to Treasury and Health as much as it does to any other department and actually security can also be quite isolated from health things which can also be a security issue so this idea of how we bring in every department sees the problem and potential has policy levers through its own areas, whether that's policing, whether that's uh, education, we see the solutions through those areas. So there needs to be a way in the centre of government who that needs to be equipped properly to do this. 
uh, combining of all that separate tracks of advice and understand the role each department and the levers they have can play in, in achieving inclusive and sustainable well-being for a society. I think also the importance of objective and subject measures comes in quite here because is it about there was also anxiety and fear cause uh, it may be a different issue so do you feel are you safe do you feel safe are two different policy problems to solve uh, and that objective data can tell you some different things as to the subjective data and I think well-being can also help in other ways in that um, individuals uh, like governments make choices based on what's most important to them and actually if in your situation the job or the relationship is more important than uh, the bigger, bigger question, you'll make a different decision uh, about whether or not you quarantine, for example, or you, you obey the rules. So um, but I think it's worth saying here that uh, having a job is a health outcome. Um, having enough money is a health outcome. And so I don't think there are a separate uh, and it's certainly not as binary as sometimes it's been made out uh, for purposes of debate. Susan. Well, I strongly agree with everything that's uh, been said, but I wanted to pick up on a couple of points. One of the issues, which is, I think, a bit different than the framework for decision making um, and framework for how you deal with trade offs, is the overarching strategy. Um, and I think it's really not been clear and still not clear whether the overarching strategy is elimination, you know, zero COVID, getting the, the, the transmission rates down to such a low level um, that one can gradually open up um, things again which has been achieved in um, many other countries and different continents um, and is also signed up to, uh, for example, in, in Scotland. Um, or is it one of, of containment? And I think that this is where um, the delay um, comes in, uh, partly because of that, because I think it's not clear what the overall strategy is. Are we living with it or are we really going to try, try and drive it down and keep it down? And that does make a difference as to where you put your resources and how you put your resources. Uh, for example, um, the test, trace and isolate system. And also it is relevant in terms of uh, what we touched on at the beginning. Do we have the right people around the table? And one of the reasons um, why Independent Sage was set up um, was a perspective that there was a lack of um, public health experts with um, expertise in pandemics. and. So, you know, WHO's advice of, um, you know, you can't go quick and hard enough, uh, you know, test, 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 etc. Um, potentially, that's a reason why that wasn't taken up and why we haven't gone down a clearer um, sort of elimination route as a target. And partly why this is problematic. I think it's not only problematic because policies are chopping and changing and, it, and, and you know, one, one's envisaging a future of continual uh, uh, lockdowns, um, is that also it doesn't give a framework um, for the population to really understand things within. And if there's not a kind of mental model that people have as to why things are happening and what the exit strategy is, um, then it's very difficult for people to keep morale and therefore um, keep adherence. Um, and similarly, I think, with the communication part of things, that communication isn't just about slogans, you know, hands, face, space or whatever. Communication is done by policies. And, you know, over the summer, if you have a combination of policies, as we mentioned about eat out to help out, but there was travel corridors, you know, go off and enjoy your summer, uh, moral duty to go to the pub, go back to work to have lunches in the middle of the city to save the economy. You know, all of these are actually communicating business as usual. And that's very confusing uh, for people when they're having to switch from this is a this is a, a huge crisis and we have to all lock down from actually, you know, things will be fine at Christmas and, you know, go about your everyday business. So I think it's a real problem on a number of levels. And I just wanted to say one other thing at this point, which is um, none of us have talked about inequalities. And I think this is really important. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> OK, I will reinforce what you said about uh, inequalities. Um, but, um, you know, I suppose this comes back to the criteria you take into account when making decisions. Um, and what I would say is that, you know, I haven't I haven't seen it's not been visible how 
Um, and what we know is the pandemic itself has increased inequalities uh, to what was already a very unequal society and government policies have further increased inequalities. And I haven't seen how that is really being factored in to decision making. Thanks. And we, we actually we had a question about how uh, quality of life um, assessments are being brought into safe discussions and whether NICE should ignore them if they're not being used. And also we had a question from Giles Armstrong, a frontline NHS doctor, which was actually, Susan, I think you've just covered that about um, what their you know, input there is in terms of how the public are understanding um, these messages and you know the ambiguous nature of them since the protect the NHS in the original one. So I think we've we've covered that. Um, Nick, do you want to just come in on that question about the sort of wider inequalities? And um, Jill Rutter, I know you know her, has also asked a question about whether there should be an R budget, which should effectively you know weigh the impact of individual measures on both the virus and the economic and wider costs. And, Obviously, we have seen, you know, statement after statement from the Chancellor um, of, you know, different sort of setting out the Lakers package and then having to adjust it. Clearly, with a crisis going on, you've got to be iterative. But should there be more work to actually try and incorporate those in a sort of budgetary sense? Does the, the Treasury have to get out of its usual ways of working? Well, the Treasury has been uh, capable of uh, doing um, this sort of analysis for years, um, ultimately, it's it, it's for the government to set out its uh, priorities. In you know what what does it want to achieve in terms of distributional effects, and then you can seek to optimise policy accordingly. Um, you know, I've been just just picking up on Jonathan Porter's uh, point a, a while back. Um, actually, often. Uh, interventions at the lower end, end of the income distribution will both be positive for the economy, um, but also positive for wider well-being and the growth of the virus. Jonathan mentioned statutory sick pay. I'd also mention, I'd also mention when it comes to transfer payments, um, universal credit, which actually, you know, some of us were critical of the way that was set up, but it seems to be working very efficiently in this crisis. So it is possible to use that to get money to those who need it most. Um, so I, you know, it's tempting, it's tempting to blame the Treasury in these um, on these occasions. And obviously, Mr. Sunak is the political um, leader of the Treasury. What we don't know. Um, because it's not being published, is um, is what sort of analysis Mr. Sunak is getting. But um, any chancellor will want to understand the distributional implications of policy. And, you know, look, insofar as the Treasury can develop alongside it a framework, as Jill suggests, where you're looking at the impact on the virus alongside uh, the impact on the economy, that is um, kind of... Uh, the ideal situation you want to get into. Now, I totally understand why at the beginning of this crisis that framework would not exist. But the one thing we do know is that it's going to go on now for for months. Um, you know, the idea that this virus is going to be wiped out by next summer seems to me a very remote one. And we're going to be going in and out of uh, degrees of control, if not lockdown. And it should be possible during this period, um, as indeed with a with a world war, to um, to develop analytical frameworks which you don't use in peacetime, uh, and actually there will be benefits coming out of this crisis in terms of better analysis and better coordination of analysis. So, um, you know, I remain optimistic. Thanks. Um, John, can I come back to you? Some of the, the discussion that we seem to be having, you know, it goes to the heart of how the government has organised itself. SAGE was um, you know, an ad hoc committee able to be got up in an emergency. It's now been going on for um, almost like it's going to continue for a, a much longer period. Um, is part of this about the government not having adjusted in those earlier months and perhaps built itself a sort of wider, robust system of how it's bringing evidence together so that 
too much is now being heaped on Sage's shoulders? It's a good question. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, possibly. I mean, the government has tried to put in mechanisms to, I mean, that's the point of the JBC, for instance, is to take some of those things off uh, Sage. So some of the routine decision or not, or routine analysis has been taken off uh, Sage. So we were doing it through the modelling subgroup of Sage by M uh, in the early part of the epidemic. A lot of the and some of that analysis has been taken off and, and, and been done by JBC now um, and done at, at a much finer scale. And the resources put into it have, have increased enormously. So we do have much better situational awareness now than we did before. Um, so I think it has done some things like that. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think we're all saying that there isn't an over, overarching framework that we are party to that I've seen that, that uh, you know, uh, and I, of course, I don't discuss things with the uh, politicians. Um, so perhaps they do have one, but it's not uh, it's not apparent to any to outsiders, at least. Um, but I think what's what, what's what we're going back to is if we had an overarching framework and a clear strategy, then it makes life easier for for us, for instance, if you give us a target, then we can try and aim for it. If we don't have a clear target all the time, it's quite difficult to know what you're aiming at. Um, Nancy, I wanted to come to you anyway. Just I mean, one of the issues that we talk about a lot in terms of evidence um, and policy making is you know the closeness to politics and not just to the political decision making but also to those political debates i mean this is obviously a hugely emotive topic all of these issues are have a lot of values concerned with them there you know politicians are quite rightly taking a close interest in the fact that people are at the moment confined to their homes but what are the issues there in terms of almost politicizing this debate and for um those who are trying to do you know think about evidence to um, explore it, analyse it, talk about it in public when it is all so emotional. Is it is it difficult and should the government be doing more to sort of almost protect that debate and to allow it to have a bit more freedom? Clearly, I mean, we are politics, we are the community, that we, we all of our civil society, this is all, this is who we are. The government is just one part of that, trying to help the civil society and communities and businesses do the things that they do. Um, and actually, I think the evidence here is a, a public good. Um, and I think, um, but I do think there should be a protected space for decision making. And I do think we need to be careful about protecting the advisors themselves as well, who may not, in, in, in order to, who may not normally be on a public stage because they're not politicians, but also because um, we want to get the best possible advice in and therefore that might dissuade some people from doing so. Um, I think a couple of things, uh, I think disaster management um, is a really good example where you could have a knowledge management function that is separate uh, from government, at least collecting what's known about how to respond in disasters of all types and because they are by their nature rare. Uh, but that so that knowledge management function becomes really important. You need to find the evidence of what happened in Manchester, in uh, in different parts of the country or the world quickly, and the experts quickly. And and so I think there is probably a good case for sort of a what works function around um, disaster management and disaster recovery, which could be fairly easily done. At least speed up some of the responses and things that you we know we need to think about beyond. Uh, from the basic needs, but also the social and cultural needs as well for people. Um, and Nick was saying that uh, the framework could be there for an emergency. I, I disagree. I think this is something we should have on a, a regular basis, a, a framework for decision making more broadly. Um, I think the data side of it is there. I think we are starting to get the framework. Um, it may need, need to be faster, but I think we have a broad framework. We have a wellbeing framework in the UK. Um, there are 140 of these around the world that give you a broad sense of the data. The decision making side of it hasn't quite caught up. I agree with that. Um, and it could be different in different contexts as well. OK, um, Susan, back to you. I mean, the the strategy at the moment is again relatively clear. It is again back to protect the NHS, try to get the R number back down to the point at which the government certainly say they want to go back into the, the tiered system. We could debate separately. Perhaps John has views as to whether or not that would work, but 
Um, if that's the strategy, obviously the key thing, again, we talked about it a bit earlier on, is compliance or adherence, you know, to the new law. So if that framework were in place, what should it be focusing on as its greatest priority in terms of understanding whether the measures are having an effect and iterating through the lockdown? Because if there's a good likelihood, we've already seen some changes to the regulation or some discussion about changes to the regulations too, uh, as politicians have brought up issues. Um, what kind of thing and focusing on if that's now the strategy? Success. Well, a couple of um, broad issues that are, are very important in terms of um, being associated with people's adherence to uh, what are obviously very challenging restrictions is a trust in those um, deciding on and um, uh, asking people or telling people um, to uh, adhere to them um, and also perceived fairness is also associated. And with both of those, uh, there's obviously huge room for improvement. Uh, the last um, data I showed, I think it was only 29% of the population um, trusted the government as handling the pandemic well. And there have been real issues uh, about perceived fairness um, across different groups. So uh, we obviously just recently on the tier system had the issue about North versus the South and differential treatment. Um, we had uh, students um, kind of be, or, or young people rather um, being being blamed for uh, rising infections. Um, you know, issues like um, you can't have seven people, you know, trusted family members in your back garden, but you can have 30 people together if you happen to be on a rice mall holding a gun. You know, these things are all communicating a kind of us and them sort of principles. And what um, SPI-B, the Behavioural Science Advisory Committee, has been saying all the way along in acknowledging how important these issues are, is the importance um, of uh, the government really engaging with communities, um, really listening, really understanding, and really um, trying to take a sort of joint partnership approach to understanding what the nature of the problems people have, the challenges to adhering to the restrictions and then sort of co-producing. We talk about this a lot in social and behavioural sciences, you know, co-creating intervention strategies. Um, so, you know, doing this with the communities, um, whether they're geographical, occupational, demographic communities. And that way, um, firstly, I'd suggest the strategies are more likely to be effective, you know, threatening huge fines for people not isolating when we know that the main reasons are having to go out for caring responsibilities outside the home, to go um, for, for jobs and for income and also to get provisions, um, you know, is not likely to be helpful. But if there's more engagement with communities and more understanding, then not only are the strategies likely to be um, more effective, but also those communities are more likely to engage because they will feel ownership and part of the solution, not being blamed as part of the problem. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to read out some of the questions. I think we've covered quite a few of them. Uh, one that we haven't was the impact on black and Asian populations um, and, you know, the government, what they're doing um, going forward to tackle this and also to sort of understand it. Um, if anyone can touch on that, that would be useful. Um, we've also got a question, I think, I mean, to some extent, Susan, you just touched on it about um, in sort of pandemic history, the, the willingness of people to ob observe tough restrictions on personal behaviour, whether that's likely to keep falling off and what the government might be doing to deal with that. I mean, you, you've just touched on some of those issues. And another question about once a vaccine is available, um, it won't be provided to everyone, um, and, but might be provided selectively. Um, what has been factored in, in terms of, again, that big question about fairness uh, and the impact that that will have? And obviously, you know, there are, I presume, also epidemiological questions about all of that. Um, John, if I could come back to you, I mean, just to wrap some of that up a little bit. It feels like there's a bit of a, a wider a issue that we've seen through the course of this year from the government in terms of planning forward for the next phase. 
you know, we are now in another lockdown. The, the, the government have that as a policy. It doesn't mean they've got time or whatever. Obviously, they're dealing with huge issues throughout all of that. But as we saw coming out of the first lockdown, as we saw, you know, coming to the end of the summer and approaching autumn, what should the government be focusing on now? What are you guys focusing on now in terms of issues, whether it's the 2nd of December, whether it's Christmas, whether it's into the new year, um, in terms of the next phase? And I mean, dare I ask, will a return to a tiered system actually work, do you think? Well, uh, take that one first. I think tier three has probably uh, worked to some extent. So tier three, at least, which is the, the, the highest level of restrictions, has slowed the epidemic in those places where it's been in place, uh, you know, may have reduced the reproduction number to somewhere close to one. Um, I think that's so uh, I think that the, the the problem with the tier system is that the other tiers don't slow the epidemic very much. And so places that are in the lower tiers inevitably end up in the higher tiers. And then if we can slow the epidemic down or, or, uh, at the higher level, but that's not a very good outcome because then everyone ends up with high incidence. So it's not a very sensible way of doing things. The lockdown is designed to reduce incidence everywhere and probably will work in doing that and reducing incidence everywhere. After we release from lockdown, we will still have to have restrictions in place to stop it coming back. The idea is to bring the incidence down and then hold it at some at that lower level rather than at the level where it is now and uh, so I, I expect that so we're not going to just be uh, returning to you know eat out to help that or I will really hope we don't uh, you know come December because that would be really unwise um, so we have to stay uh, with some restrictions in place with and and keep the, uh, the, 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 the epidemic at a low level and then I think we do late looking further into the, the new year I do think that we will see uh, vaccines coming on stream in in you know sometime in the in in the early part of next year. Whether it's right in the new year or a bit later, I don't know. But I do think we will see vaccines being used, and that does change things because that that does allow us then to start to relax a little bit more. I mean, we're not going to be mass vaccinating the entire country uh, because we just will not have the, the vaccine doses available and of course we'll still have to sort of introduce the vaccine very carefully and evaluate its effectiveness and safety very very carefully so it would be unwise perhaps to vaccinate the, the lowest risk groups immediately um, just because you know perhaps the, the benefit risk ratio uh, we're not sure of uh, exactly yet so I think um, I think we will see vaccines being introduced to the highest risk people first, and I think that's perfectly acceptable type of strategy. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think I think we will start to come out of this kind of nightmare of uh, of, of of this epidemic. You know, from I don't know, I I would say I've always felt that it's around Easter. You know, around a year in is when we'll really start to come out because we'll we will be vaccinating. We will be able to control the epidemic better. It, and it is possible that these other interventions that are sort of uh, being mooted at the moment, I mean, Liverpool is now going through a, a you know, a mass screening. Um, it is possible that those could help to, to, to reduce um, incidents and keep it low uh, in the inter intervening period. I think there's a lot of work to do to ensure that that might be the case. Um, but there are, you know, as a, it's, a, it's an example of other technological solutions that are coming on stream that could help uh, in, the, in the coming months. Thanks, Nick. Um, and then Susan and Nancy, I mean, what do you, what would you all want to see a focus on um, in the sort of coming month? Um, you know, as we say, we approach Christmas and into the new year. What are the sort of priorities the government should be thinking about now in terms of what we've talked about today? Well, I think um, clarity on the strategy and then communicating consistently with the strategy is really important. I think the comms so far in this crisis have tended to flip flop from excessive optimism to, um, quite frankly, um, you know, a degree of pessimism. And what what the government's role is, is to provide leadership 
and consistency. From a more narrow perspective of the Treasury, I would hope also uh, they are looking at how you get out of this crisis economically and really homing in on the cost effectiveness of interventions. I, I was slightly disappointed by the furlough announcement yesterday. I think it's going to prove excessively expensive. Um, I think uh, it's a reaction to being behind the curve. We're now, you know, uh, Nigel Lawson once said of the Treasury, it's got two modes, too little, too late, and too much, too late. And um, I think we could be in that sort of territory. So developing a really good programme to take the economy um, back into growth mode whilst um, uh, minimising the implications for the virus, I think is absolutely critical for well-being across the country. Susan. Well, I think whilst we wait for a vaccine, we don't know when it'll come, we don't know how effective it'll be, um, we absolutely need to sort out the test, trace and isolate system. I mean, if you look around the world and see which countries are now doing pretty well, um, they're those that have managed to get the virus down to a low level and then have a really good test, trace and isolate system, uh, which can intervene quickly to suppress the inevitable outbreaks that will happen. But that means really changing things at every level, you know, the, the, the testing, making sure it's accessible. And from our data, only 50% of people uh, still know what the three key um, symptoms of coronavirus are. So we can do much better in that. Um, we know that tracing contacts is quite frankly abysmally low, um, nowhere near what is needed. And then I, I touched on the isolation before and what's needed um, to make that work. I think the whole actual design of the system is broken and independent sages put together a seven page blueprint of how this could be done differently. Um, but I'm on a, a Lancet commission where we're hearing um, presentations from countries all over the world. It's so different in many, many countries, even much poorer countries um, where you know people get when they're isolating, they get visited every day, um, asked, how are you? Um, you know, do you need practical help, like putting out your rubbish, your provisions, uh, checking on symptoms, psychological support? Um, people are offered other kinds of accommodation, often free. You know, and so I do think um, if we can get the system sorted, which does mean making it local by people who understand their communities and the communities trust those who are contacting them, um, that if we can do that, then we're in a really good chance of um, being able to get back to a more normal life without having to face these draconian restrictions. But it does mean learning from the rest of the world. Thanks, Nancy, your final thoughts. So for me, this has got to work and the length of the lockdown is really important because the longer it goes on, the longer the harms are. Um, and so we need to make sure that we make it as easy as possible for people to do it. Um, and there's a couple of things I'd probably look out for then. One, um, and Susan's picked up really well, is that the communities are key here um, and as are uh, our emotional health. So um, as is social capital and fairness. So I would look at where the multiple drivers of well-being are affected for where the real harm is. So where people are affected in their physical health, their relationships and their jobs. And that's where the combination you get is really quite volatile. Uh, really I'm worried about people who are unable to meet their partners um, and what that means for the future for the, our single uh, population, as well as those who are overcrowded in their spaces and can't physically be in that space. But lastly, I'd probably say um, that social capital here is key. Fairness is a part of that. Our relationships and communities are part of that. But that's what brings us resilience um, and helps us bounce back, whether that's an economic shock or any other shock. Um, and I'm really pleased that the, the Treasury is looking at what's cost effective in that context. And I think that applies to um, are what makes an effective law as much as anything else but that's a whole other different discussion so my main bit is look out for the main drivers of well-being the physical health the mental health the social connection and the jobs and then the social capital bit will bring us resilience and our communities are key to that okay well a whole long list there of recommendations for the government and no doubt things that we will come back to again and again we're out of time um huge thanks to my panel for being online with us today uh, but also we've been talking about experts and the role of 
SAGE, we should also offer them our thanks. They've been working very hard for many months to get the country through uh, this emergency and a, a huge effort from all of them. Um, as I say, this is a topic that I'm sure will keep being relevant in the coming weeks and months and we'll come back to. At the Institute for Government, we've got a report coming out in a few weeks time looking at science advice during this crisis and SAGE's role in that. So keep an eye out for that. And for more events, explainers, comments and reports, do visit our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk and our podcast Inside Briefing, where this will be available hopefully later today. Thank you all and goodbye for now.